All right, I'm going to go ahead and lead us in prayer and start, so let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your creation that you made um, without any obligation whatsoever, freely and graciously. Lord, we thank you. And we pray that as we study your word together this morning, you would open our eyes and, and open our hearts to be thankful and filled with uh, joy at your goodness to us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. This is our uh, second week of studying God's covenants. And um, we saw last week that God relates to his creatures by covenant. And this theme runs all through the Bible and ties the whole Bible together. Unlike the dispensations of dispensationalism, which disintegrate the Bible is what I said last week. And I want to talk just a little bit more about that this morning, about dispensationalism, because I made a strong statement last week when I said that dispensationalism just is not biblical. That's the kind of the flat statement that I made. (laughs) Now, I, I do strongly believe that, but that doesn't mean that dispensationalists are bad or something. Okay, you good? Um, I do believe it is a faulty system, okay? And that when you embrace it, it leads to all kinds of issues downstream. This is one of those kinds of questions. It's big, big, you know, how do we interpret the Bible? That's, that's, the, that's what's at stake. And so however you answer that kind of goes in different directions. So dispensationalism is primarily a method of understanding the whole Bible. It's a framework. It's a lens that people use to make sense of the whole thing. Right, so what is God doing? Uh, how does he relate to mankind? How does God's law fit into that? How does the gospel fit into that? What's the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Where is all this going? What is the end? What is the purpose of all of this? Now, those are all very good questions. Those are the right questions. But, and we really do have to have some kind of framework to answer those questions, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with having a framework Uh, that you use to help you answer those questions, okay? But remember, the Bible is God's book, and it's not a a random hodgepodge of pious thoughts and crazy myths written by who knows who and put together and like just a jumble of things that you have to deal with the fact that there's all kinds of contradictions and mess. There isn't. It does cohere with itself. It does not contradict itself. And so our framework or our lens or our system through which we read the Bible is simply a way of recognizing that and understanding how does it fit together. But here's the thing. Your framework for reading and understanding the Bible has to be what? The Bible's framework. It has to be something that actually comes from out of the Bible itself because the Bible is the authority. The Bible is the standard. So it has to be the framework or the lens or the system that the Bible itself teaches. You, if you construct an unbiblical framework and then apply that to the scriptures, then your understanding of the whole Bible will be skewed. If you look at the Bible through an unbiblical lens, right? Think of a lens. Then if you're looking at a lens that has weird distortions in it, then what you're looking at will be distorted. So it's my settled judgment and my conviction that dispensationalism offers an unbiblical framework or a distorted lens. 
I believe that the system taught by dispensationalism is not native to the Bible itself. It doesn't come out of the Bible. It doesn't naturally and consistently arise from out of the Bible itself. And so necessarily, I believe, it distorts things, okay? Now, it doesn't distort everything. Uh, some systems of interpretation actually do distort everything, right? In other words, if you have if your lens for reading the Bible is, let's say, naturalism. Naturalism means, you know, there are no miracles, there is no supernatural, um, uh, no divine revelation, no eternal soul that will live forever in heaven or in hell. If that is your lens that you read the Bible through, then of course that kind of lens distorts literally everything. There's nothing that's not affected by that kind of lens. Does that make sense? Dispensationalism does not do that, okay? It does not distort everything. It is a system that was developed by people who love God and love his word and love and trust Jesus Christ. But, the, but good intentions and faith do not necessarily make you what? Right. <laughs> you know, I've, I have been and surely still am wrong about all kinds of things, okay? Uh, so yeah, my mother-in-law hardly agrees with that. Uh, <laughs> the process, there's a, there's, sanctification is a process that doesn't just affect your morals. It also affects your understanding of Scripture. And it's progressive and it grows. Um, and so that means we're all wrong about something. Um, and so you can have a good heart and a sincere faith and still be wrong in all kinds of ways. But again, I believe dispensationalism is a faulty system that does not arise naturally from the Bible and that does skew the Bible when you read the Bible through that lens. And again, I don't say that to offend anyone who may have grown up with dispensationalism or, may, or who may still be committed to it now. Uh, I'm not saying you have to agree with me. What I do hope is that if that is your background or your current conviction, that you will be willing to question the lens. Does that make sense? We'll be willing to question the lens. I believe covenant theology is a more biblical, more consistent, clearer lens. And so I'm duty-bound to teach you that because that's what I believe to be true in my conscience, in my understanding I believe what, that's what's true. And so even if that means openly criti criticizing or critiquing something you might hold dear, you know, it's my calling to do that. Um, we, we need to be like the people in, we need to be like the Bereans. Remember the Bereans in the book of Acts uh, 17? It says they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So that's your job. I'm gonna, I'm gonna teach and it's your job to examine the scriptures to see if what I'm saying fits. That's always your job, with no matter who's teaching and no matter what is being taught, right? So I'd also say one last thing here. The, dispensational, the, the dispensational system has been changing over the years. It's not like a snapshot, uh, consistent, monolithic thing. There's a new school of thought called progressive dispensationalism, um, that, is, that is a movement 
there's another, by movement I mean it's moving away from some of the old things and moving kind of in a, what I would call a more biblical direction, right? There's another school of thought called New Covenant Theology or Progressive Covenantalism. Some of you are familiar with Southern Seminary down in Louisville, that's what they're teaching now. Um, I would say it is a kind of dispensationalism, they would argue against me. There are all, these are all moving targets to a large degree. These are ideas that are, being in the, that are new and are being actually developed uh, in real time, right now. So you may think, oh, okay, I understand that. And then you, you shoot for that in a response and, and the position moved over here. It's like, oh, you know, it's a moving target. Um, they are, they're still baking in the oven. And so it's hard to say what the final cake will taste like, you know. But I would say that in many ways, progressive dispensationalism is moving in the right direction. This is not going to be a class where I'm constantly talking about dispensationalism. But I want everybody to understand I am presenting a system that is different than that. I don't want you to get confused and just try to muddle them together. They really are different. That's why I'm trying to say this as strongly as I can right now. Totally different. Okay, you all with me? All right. I know some of you aren't with me with me, but you know, you understand what I'm saying? Okay. Now, this is the, the uh, thing I put up at the end last week, so I wanted to put it here again to show you where we are, okay? Remember this covenant here at the bottom is before time made between the persons of the Trinity that unfolds itself in the covenant of grace, and we'll, we'll see that soon. Here's where we are today, the universal covenant. Last week I called that the covenant of creation, but some people use that term differently, so I, to clarify, I'm, I'm calling it the universal covenant. So this is where we are, right down, way down at the bottom, okay, way down fundamental, foundational, big picture, well, universal. So what do I mean by that? Well, first of all, you know, this term None of these terms really are, are terms you'll find in the Bible. You know, you're going to open up your concordance, open up your phone, get on your computer, type in these things. That You're not going to have a list of passages that, sh that use these words, all right? Um, it's a theological term that gathers together the teaching of Scripture and tries to label that teaching in a way that's helpful and clarifying to us, that gives us handles to use as we think about it. And that is a good and necessary practice that we do all the time. What, what's the classic example of that? Trinity. Yeah. You know, you're not going to find that in your concordance. Um, substitutionary atonement. Plenary verbal inspiration. You know, covenant of works, covenant of grace. These are not terms that you're going to find in your concordance, but they are absolutely ideas and doctrines that are taught by scripture. And so these terms become kind of shorthand that, that we use so that when we use it, we all know what we're talking about, right? Um, this is, so that's, you don't have to have the term in scripture to have the doctrine in scripture. Secondly, we don't have to read the word covenant in order to know that a covenant is present in scripture. And as we'll see this more next week, when we get into the Garden of Eden and Adam, 
the book of Genesis doesn't use the word covenant in the context of God's dealing with Adam in the Garden of Eden in the book of Genesis, okay? But we'll see that all the marks of a covenant are present in Genesis 1 to 3. And there is a place later in the, New Te- in the Old Testament that refers back to God's covenant with Adam. All right, so we're not just making this up. I wanna show you all over the place, this is all coming right from scripture. Um, and so if it quacks like a duck, swims like a duck, smells like a duck, tastes like a duck, it's a duck. Um, if the marks of a covenant are there, you don't have to necessarily have that word in that text. Does that make sense? All right, is that fair? So that's the second thing. Third, uh, and I don't have a, a slide for these passages because I just scribbled these in my notes this morning, all right? But I, wanted, I think it's important to say. When we read of God's covenant with Noah, so, so today we're gonna be talking about this, the universal covenant. When we read of God's covenant with Noah, which we will in a few weeks, there's evidence that the Noahic covenant, right, the God, God's covenant with Noah, that is also with who or what? All of creation. We'll, we'll get there, right? There's evidence in the Hebrew text of Genesis uh, six eighteen that the Noahic covenant was not a brand new thing out of the blue, but it was a continuation of an older covenant. We'll get to that, all right? Um, so what it says in Genesis six eighteen, God says, I will establish my covenant with you. That word establish is not the word that's normally used for making a new covenant. You know, it's the word that, we, that you could translate confirm. So there's a difference between making something and confirming something. Confirming something assumes there's something previous, okay? I believe that's what we're gonna be talking about today, the universal covenant. And then secondly, in Jeremiah thirty-three twenty, God speaks of my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night. And in that passage in Jeremiah 33, uh, he says it a couple of times. It's language that is taken straight from Genesis 1, from the creation account, and it's, it's, it seems to be obvious that that's what we should all be thinking about when we read that, okay? So in other words, he uses covenantal terms for something that goes all the way back to creation itself. Not just Adam, not just don't eat of the tree, not just be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, but even creation and God's ordering of creation in a way that is consistent and regular and, you know, that, that's what I'm talking about with universal covenant. We'll, I'll open that up in just a moment. And fourth, even if what I'm going to describe to you today as the universal covenant is not technically a covenant, I'm gonna argue that it is, but even if it's not, all right, I still think this idea is getting at something very important for us to understand because it'll give us a foundation for understanding literally everything in the Bible. So that's kind of important. And it'll help us understand all the other covenants too. It really is, you know, foundational, way down here at the bottom that provides a base to build on. And even if... um, It'll even give you, you literally, personally, 
you a foundation for understanding your own life, your neighbors, the world around you, God's wrath and judgments on pagan nations, on and on and on and on. This is something that's huge and very important. Okay, so what am I talking about? What do I mean by the universal covenant? God is king over all creation. All right? Animate, inanimate, uh, physical, non-physical. He is the king over everything. And everything is duty-bound. We'll get to that in a moment. Here, obviously, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. The world and all those who dwell in it, why? Because he's founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. He made it. So it's his. He has authority over it. Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In whose hand are the depths of the earth, the peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for it was he who made it. And his hands formed the dry ground, the dry land. It's his, he made it. Colossians 1, speaking of Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, invisible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and what? For him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. So he is, he made the world, it's his. That, that means there's a relationship of ownership and authority and lordship over all creation. And because God is the king, because God is the covenant Lord, over all creation, every creature and every atom of the universe is duty-bound to obey him. There, there's a moral requirement for creation to do what it was made to do. All right? Even inanimate things. So look at this. There are four things, four ways, and, and maybe more, this is what I came up with, four ways that creation is duty-bound towards God. Number one, creation is duty-bound to exist at the command of the Lord God, right? The, the Lord God said, let there be light. And the light said, eh, let me think about it. No. There was light. Could, could the light have said no? No. Secondly, creation is duty-bound to reveal the Lord God. Psalm 19, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. You see that opened up in Romans 1, which we'll get to later, where all creation is always revealing God. That's what it was made for. It's duty-bound to do this. Number three, Creation is duty-bound to obey the Lord God. Think about all these, there's all kinds of passages all through the Old Testament. The book of Job is filled with this kind of thing, right? Look at this, Job 37. Also with moisture, he loads the thick cloud. 
He disperses the cloud of his lightning. It's his lightning, right? It changes direction, turning around by his guidance that it may do whatever he commands it on the face of the inhabited earth. This is talking about weather. Clouds, lightning, storms. Yeah. This is everything that happens out there is creation obeying the command of God. All right? Job 38. Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? <laughs> no. Well, God can. They report to him. The lightning bolts, right? Job 39. Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and takes his nest on high? No. Well, it is at God's command. That's the point. And again, Job is filled with that kind of language of command and order and obedience from creation. Then you go into the New Testament, and what do you have? You have this, Matthew 8. It's the story of the, of the sea, of Jesus calming the sea, remember? And right at the, down at the bottom, remember he says to the, the wind, he rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Read in Colossians, remember, Colossians 1, all things were created through him, him, Jesus. All things were made through him and for him. And so when he shows up and he gives a command to the sea, stop it. Well, it stops, right? There's a, there is a, a, a requirement, a duty for the creation to obey its creator. Okay, you with me? And then lastly, creation is duty-bound to worship the Lord God. This is Psalm 148. It's going to go on for several slides because you can't stop. All right. Psalm 148. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Notice who's to praise the Lord. Praise, praise him in the heights. Praise him all his angels. Praise him all his hosts. Those are the armies of heaven. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all stars of light. Praise him, highest heavens and the waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. He has also established them forever and ever. He has made a decree which will not pass away. That's that, that steadfast promise that this is how it's gonna go. It's always gonna go this way. He's established the creation, right? He has, he has established them forever and ever. He's commanded them. He has made a decree which will not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, sea monsters and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and clouds, stormy wind fulfilling his word. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all cattle creeping things and winged fowl, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all judges of the earth, not just the Jews, everybody. Both young men and virgins, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord for his name alone is exalted, his glory is above earth and heaven. All creation, God made it. It's his, he commands it. It is to reveal him, and it is to worship him. 
Think about this from the New Testament, Luke 19. This is the uh, uh, triumphal entry, right, of Jesus coming into Jerusalem to be crucified. It says, as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. That's what they were made for, right? They were made to worship God. Okay. So there are duties imposed on creation because God is the Lord of creation. Exist. Reveal. Obey. Worship. Right? These are duties that are bound up with the fact that God is the creator and they're the creation and this is the way it's supposed to be. These are I would say, covenant duties, responsibilities. Remember this, that covenants have stipulations and terms, right? They, there are duties. Here's what you will do. Here's what I will do. Here's what happens if you don't do this. Here's what'll happen if I don't do this, right? Stipulations and duties. Duties to perform, if they fail, there are consequences. Well, is that the case here with this covenant? Well, sort of. All right, think about this. There's, there's no formal, uh, I'm admitting, there's no formal expression or ritual with the universal covenant that we can go back to and find, you know, this is where this covenant was made. We have the animals, we have Abraham, you know, we have Moses, we have, you know, we don't have that kind of thing. But I do think we have terms and conditions. So think about this. Here are the stipulations, there they are. The four that I listed, exist, reveal, obey, and worship. Can the inanimate creation disobey God's creational commands? So think about it, can the light refuse to burst into being when God commands it to? No. Could the heavens refuse to declare the glory of God? No. Could the wind and the sea refuse to be still when Jesus said, peace, be still? Could they say, no. No. Could the rocks refuse to cry out and the fire and the hail and snow and clouds refuse to praise the name of the Lord? No. The inanimate creation cannot refuse to obey the Lord of creation. Okay, so what about the animate creation? Specifically the, I'm not talking about puppy dogs, but, you know, angels and men. Sentient, animate creation, right? Thinking about angels and men. Can men and angels refuse to exist? No. Hmm? They can try. Absolutely they can try. Well, how? Well, 
angels and men can't refuse to exist, but they can certainly refuse to exist as God intended. Correct? Think about men, and by men I mean mankind, men and women and women. Um, what about effeminacy? You're a man. That, was, that is the existence that God gave you. But you don't want to be a man. You know? And you could, that can be on the scale from softness and effeminacy and failure to carry the weight that God has given you to carry and all these things that we would recognize in Scripture as connected to manhood all the way to actually I'm a woman. You know? And of course, women can do the same thing. God created women to be women. There are attributes that go along with that. You can reject all of that and say, nope, that's not for me. In fact, I want to be a man. Call me Bob. You know? There's a, Tim has said many times, if you follow what he says uh, about this, he says, obey your sex. Have you heard him say that or read him say that? Obey your sex. If you're a man, being made by God as a man, he, he created you, he called you into existence, and he gave you, that existence carries with it duties. Does that make sense? If you're a woman, that existence carries with it duties, weight, responsibility, um, requirements that you can't just blow off. All right? There's a new movement. I don't know how new it is, but there's a movement called transhumanism. Have you, have you anyone tracked with transhumanism? Transhumanism. So what does trans mean? To, 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 it can mean to change, to transcend, to rise above, right? And so transhumanism is a movement that's growing in popularity that the whole point is to become something bigger than human something other than human. And they're doing it by implanting, uh, implanting things, replacing parts. You know, some, some people have, it can go in the direction of kind of this grotesque body modification with horns and there are people who make themselves look like lizards and seriously, I'm not, this is, it's, it's very strange. Or technological implants that make them, you know, superhuman. What is that? What is all of that? God said, let you be a man. Right? Let you be a woman. Let there be light. Let you be a man. Let you be a woman. And you say, no. Ain't gonna do it. So sentient humans, right? Not rocks, not light. But we certainly can say, no, ain't going to do it. It's a rebellion and a, against God and a breaking of his covenant. Does that make sense? Eric says no. <laughs> no. Shoes do not elevate you above your humanity. I'm sorry. <clears throat> what about angels?
Is there any sense in which angels say, I ain't going to do it? You, this is what you made me to be, and I'm going to be something else. Yeah, look at this. Who of you are in my, in my, win, my Tuesday night book group? There's one, there's one, there's one, there's one, there's one. Okay. We're memorizing the book of Jude together, the men and my men of the book, book group on Tuesdays. And here we are. This is what we just did for this week. And this is next week. So, But it says, angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, so you've got two parties here, the men of Sodom and Gomorrah and the angels, they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So there's some kind of similarity between what these angels did and what Sodom and Gomorrah did. What are you talking about? What's he talking about? Well, I believe, I don't want to go off into the weird weeds here, but I, I actually don't think this is weird at all. This is actually kind of pretty standard until relatively recently. I believe he's talking about Genesis 6, okay? Which we'll actually get to when we talk about the Noahic Covenant, because it's the setup for the Noahic Covenant, the flood. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God, I believe these are the, the angels spoken of in Jude 6, or Jude, well we have verse 6. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his day shall be 120 years. <clears throat> the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. We're not going to get into all of that today, but I, my belief <clears throat> is that these things are talking about the same thing. Okay, Genesis 6, Jude. Jude is looking back. Peter does the same thing in Second Peter. And he's talking about this. Here's my point. These are angels who said, I don't want to be an angel. All right? They abandoned their own domain. They abandoned their proper abode. Just like a man who says, I don't want to be a man. Call me Susie. Call me Sue. <laughs> right? I'm not going to be what God made me to be. So existence, all right, we'll get into that later, don't worry. Can men and angels refuse to reveal the glory of God? To reveal the glory of God? Yes and no. They do it simply by existing, they can't help it, but they sure can refuse to do it willingly, right? They can dishonor him. Can men and angels refuse to obey the Lord God? Of course. Can men and angels refuse to worship God? Of course. So here's a place in Scripture, Romans 1, that actually kind of brings these things together. Look, Romans 1, 18. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, so this goes all the way back to creation, right? Since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, <clears throat> his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. God made the world, one of the reasons was that he made it, one of the purposes, one of the stipulations, one of the requirements, you must reveal me. This has always been the case, always will be. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. Right? They didn't, there is a universal built into creation. Simply by virtue of being created, you have the duty and the obligation to worship and, and thank God. This is true of all men everywhere. It's true of all creation everywhere. But they didn't. Even though they knew him, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened, professing to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among, among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. This is the, the most basic violation of this universal covenant, right? It is to worship, it is to turn away from worshiping God, turn away from giving thanks to him, turning away from acknowledging him as God, and turning and worshiping and serving what? The creation. This is, this is the essence of all of our rebellion against God not just ancient, but modern, okay? This is, this is the condition. We, we are, you know, there's not some place where God came and had some kind of ritual and said, okay, I'm gonna make a covenant with you now. This comes pre-wired from the beginning. We are bound, duty bound to do this. And all men break this covenant. All mankind. This is a universal covenant that is binding on all men everywhere, all creatures. And of course, there are, there are consequences for breaking it, aren't there? You become fools. God gives you over to impurity. And the chapter goes on to describe that impurity. These are consequences for breaking this fundamental, foundational, universal covenant. Okay, now, question? We're talking about all creation. What are they? We'll get to that. Yeah. No, don't get hung up on that. We'll get to that when we get to Noah. I think it's very important, actually. 
So what are some implications of all of this? Um, quickly, here they are. And there are many more, and I've got to be real quick here. Well, number one, this is God's world. This is God's world. What does that mean? Well, that means all, all facts, every little part of, every, of everything that you could possibly know, think about, sense, whatever, everything in this whole created universe is God's, and it, isn't, it, it, gives, it gets its meaning from God. It is all the facts that we could possibly know get their true interpretation from God. This is God's world. You can't cut, you can't say, okay, um, the Bible is about, you know, going to heaven when you die. And everything else is just like random. You know? No, everything else was made by God. You know, how water functions, uh, what trees are, what economics is, um, all of it. This is God's world. He made it for himself. Secondly, truth is not relative. Again, all facts are created and interpreted by God. All facts are God's facts. All reality is God's reality. We can't redefine the nature of existence. You can't redefine the nature of man and woman. You can't redefine the nature of things that God made, like marriage. You can't redefine what animals are. God made animals. You understand? We can't decide that they're human. We can't decide that humans are animals. God made these things and gave assignments to them and gave definition and duties to them that fit with, with our creational nature. So no truth is relative, this is God's world. And third, Jesus Christ is Lord over all. Jesus Christ is Lord over all. All what? All. All nations, all lands, all creatures, men and angels, visible and invisible, all of it. He made them, he rules them, he judges them. If they'll be saved, he alone will save them. There's this notion today that um, God doesn't judge nations anymore. Right? You hear this all the time. You know, the only God, the only nations God judges are the nations that are that are that were somehow in covenant with Him, and that was Israel. And Israel's is gone, so he, God doesn't judge nations. That comes from dispensationalism, right? Radical discontinuity between then and now. No. We are all in covenant with God. All of creation is in covenant with God. Not because of Moses. Not even because of Adam. We haven't gotten to Adam yet. All of creation is in covenant with God because God is the covenant Lord of all. So, oh no, God doesn't judge. He, he won't judge America because we didn't make a covenant with God back in, you know, 1776. Sorry, um, there are judgments. He judges nations. Even in the Old Testament, he judged nations that weren't in covenant with God in the, in the Moses sense, okay? 
Everything belongs to him and he will judge everything. Did I see a hand back there? Yeah, yeah, and we'll see that later too. Okay, here, one verse to read, one passage, sorry, not a verse. Look at this, look at the universal nature of this. We read this a minute ago, but let's go a little further. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. His creation is universal, the demands are universal, Stipulations are universal. The judgments are universal. What else is universal? According to this passage, what else? The reconciliation is universal. I don't mean universalism, which means every, everyone will go to heaven. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the whole creation. As we sing a song at Christmas, Joy to the World, and there's a line in that in that song, he comes to make his blessings flow. How far? As far as the curse is found. Right? It's his. He's going to reconcile all things to himself. And therefore, all creatures are without excuse. And I got to be done. (laughs) I'm without excuse for being late. No, 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 we'll get to that. Don't worry. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Help us, Lord, to take all of this very seriously in the, in the duties and stipulations and commands that you give to us simply because we are your creatures. And help us to not rebel against that. Forgive us for rebelling against that. And let us honor you as our covenant Lord. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.